Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C-I-N-E-P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's the Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud Fast Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personable in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. One of our newer sponsors here at the Shameless Picture Show is Kino Warber. With a library of over 4,000 titles, Kino Warber Incorporated has been a leader in independent art house distribution for 35 years, including 30 films per year theatrically under its Kino Warber Kino Repertory and Alive Mind Cinema Banners, garnering seven Academy Award nominations in nine years. In addition, the company brings over 350 titles yearly to the home entertainment educational markets through physical and digital media releases. With the expanding family of distributed labels, Kino Warber handles releases and ancillary media for Zeitgeist Films, Milestone Films, Cohen Media Group, Greenwich Entertainment, Artsploitation, Palisades Tartan, Raro Video, and others, placing physical titles through all wholesale, retail, and direct-to-consumer channels, as well as direct digital distribution through over 40 OTT services, including all major TVOD and SVOD platforms. If you'd like more information on Kino Warber and all the great titles they're putting out, be sure to check them out at www.kinowarber.com. That's K-I-N-O-L-O-R-B-E-R. KinoWarber.com Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am your host, Michael Byers, and joining me today is one of my best friends from film school, Nico Aldrich. While our friendship didn't really take off until the end of film school, funny enough, he's dropping stuff, we found ourselves bonding over our mutual love of The Simpsons, 
horror horror and genre films and of course collecting physical media i guess film school also kind of like was a bond but that's not, yeah. we we became friends because of the simpsons yes um on top of all that nico is also a very talented filmmaker and editor who has made multiple really cool horror music videos set to the music of i know kim petras for sure and i think you've done other ones as well yes i uh i mean i have a friday the 13th like retrospective thing and Probably this year we'll need some other artists if I do one. Yeah, so he, um, where are those available? Uh, on my YouTube channel, which I can... Uh, I'll put a link in the description. Link yeah. to, you know, if, if you want If you want to check them out, they're really cool little party videos. But uh, how have you been, Nico? It's been a while since you've been on the show. Yeah, I was looking up. I think uh, it's been two years. Two years? Because you were or on... No, three two. years. Three years. 2020. Yeah, because you were on. Well, you were on very early in the show when we when we um, talked about um, Slaughter High. Yes, um, and then well, I'm trying to think what the last one you were on was. Uh, it was Slaughter High and uh, Edge of the X. That was the other one. Edge of the X. Yeah, we have a we have a, we had we definitely have like a specialty when I have you on the show. But Slashers, at the same time, yeah, yeah. At the same time, I, I I try to do that. I try whenever I have a guest on, I want it to be something that. Because I, I, I'm sure I could just rope people in to talk about whatever, but I want it to be something that is important to them, special to them, something that they feel like they have something to mm-hmm. talk about. Yeah, um, there's a lot to talk about with this one. <laughs> definitely. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll move on to the topic uh, in a little bit, but uh, I figured I'd ask, how you doing? How have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, good. Um, I work at an advertising company, so I've just been working on a lot of movie, TV spots, uh, all hush stuff, like stuff you can't talk about. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> NDAs are signed. I cannot speak mm-hmm. to what I am working on or have worked on. One thing I wanted to talk to you a little bit about before we actually got to our topic at hand was mm-hmm. I just saw a movie that um, uh, that I, I wanted to get your perspective on. Okay. I just watched Scream 6 last night for the first time. Uh, and I just want to know what you thought of it. Because <laughs> I know you love the franchise. I, I love I loved it. I, I didn't love Scream 2022. So I didn't either, but a lot of people did. People really did. And that's cool. Like, I, I don't think it's a bad movie by any means. I just was like, yeah, it's same. Fine. I, it felt a lot of the same. It felt like, you know, in a lot of the, in a lot of the Scream films, they're always talking about you have to, like, do bigger and do better. And I know that one is supposed to kind of be the remake, the one that's commenting mm-hmm. on remakes. Yeah. Um, but it just, it felt too safe. Yeah, it... It felt like it was kind of treading on what Scream 4 had already done. Yes. Like, which kind of bothered me. And th- this one feels like, yeah, it's kind of doing the Scream 2 thing now, but it, it felt like, okay, we have big like set pieces again. We have uh, a motivation that I think is really silly and campy, but ties back into the first one in a way that I thought was like fun. And I, I was actually genuinely surprised by the... Uh, yeah, uh, I, I went in with reveals. no expectations. I went in with no expectations because I did not like Scream 2022 very much. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, didn't hate it. Yeah. But it was just one of those, I guess, I, I just didn't see what everyone else was seeing because the movie mm-hmm. definitely gets a lot of love. Yeah. Um, and I just thought the, the reveal in Scream 2022 was like, it's one of those reveals where it feels very, I'm trying to, I don't want to spoil it too much for those who haven't seen it. Um, but if it was one of those reveals that like, you think to yourself, like, oh, it can't be this person because it's far too obvious. And then it be, it's that person. <laughs> the yeah. one thing I liked about the the new one, though, is, like, I, I, I did love the change of, of location. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I um, that was great. I loved just how aggressive Ghostface was in this one, and it's 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 a nice change of pace because like in the original Scream, Ghostface is kind of a doof. Yeah, like he's always tripping over shit, and it just like. Mm-hmm. I don't care oh. about spoiling the original Scream, yeah. anyone who hasn't seen Scream yeah. by now, but, like, it makes sense for who the killers are because they're yeah. teenagers, that they're doofuses. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, this this one was fun because it, it very much felt like it was being inspired by Jalo films, which I enjoyed quite oh, a bit. It's sure. really yeah. graphic and violent, and mm-hmm. uh, but still fun because sometimes you can be really graphic and violent and just be, like, arduous to watch. Yeah. It, and I love the, uh, I guess this would be kind of, I don't know how much you want to do mild spoilers for Scream yeah, I'll, I'll warn people. All right, for the opening, um, the I, I think this has one of the better openings. I, I like, for yeah. me, like the original Scream is great. Uh, I love Scream Four's opening four. is great just four because it just so kept good. it just kept going with it. it was, yeah, it was, crazy. it was so fun. And then this one, like, because like it ends with the killer taking off the mask and. It, watching it the first time, I'm like, oh shit, is this going to be one where we know who the killer is the whole time? And then there's obviously plot things that go, and mm-hmm. it goes in different directions. Uh, but I, I thought that was like a, it added a layer of like unpredictability to it that I really enjoyed. Cause like, yeah. That, and like, I, I legitimately was guessing throughout the film mm-hmm. and like, you, you always are with the scream film, but like you kind of have suspicions throughout mm-hmm. and, um, once they do reveal the killer, like there was like a brief moment where I thought it was it was going to be that person, but mm-hmm. not enough to the point where like I really like it was a, like a real thought in my mind. Because yeah. at a certain point, when you're watching these movies, you just assume at any point anyone could be the killer, and you just kind of have a thought mm-hmm. of that and try to like work through it. Yeah, uh, it was it was pleasantly surprising um, in a way. Like I said, and I went in low expectations because I didn't love the last one, mm-hmm. and since they are kind of in a fun way mimicking. You know, so Scream 2022 was mimicking the first one in its own way, and this one's mm-hmm. kind of mimicking the second one. I'm really excited for the next one when they just go full Scream 3 and just get really fucking meta. Yeah. Scream 3 is one that I've, uh, I still think is the worst one, but I appreciate it a lot more now. Um, it's just, it's kind of like Seed of Chucky, where the more I watch it, the more I like it, even oh, I though I can Seed say objectively it's it's not always the best, but I think it's just, it's the most, it's the most creative. Yeah, well, Scream 3 is like, it's like a Me Too critique of Harvey Weinstein, but 17 years before Me Too, (laughs) and it's making fun of Harvey Weinstein in a movie that Harvey Weinstein produced, and he does not seem to be aware of that, which is kind of brilliant. That is brilliant. (laughs) So, on that level. I think people need to rediscover Scream 3. Yeah. Plus, it's the only screen movie with with Jane Sound Bob in it, so that alone. Is- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I like that one. It, also, I think that one has the best ending for Sydney. Like, I think that end point for her, like, it's a little cliche and on the nose with her, like the door open and everything. But like, I almost kind of wish Sydney hadn't come back after that point. Because yeah, I think that's a good ending point for her. It's, it's Scream Six just kind of poochied her out of the show. You know, she just yeah. went back to her home planet and just let's just let's just explain her off in a piece of dialogue. Yeah, and apparently, uh, people who have heard from on other podcasts who had access to the script had said that yeah, she was definitely a major part of the original script. So I'm very curious what the original Scream 6 was going to be like with it. Yeah. 
Um, and I will say one thing I will say it's it's not too spoilery, but like the um I definitely had more like like cheering moments in Scream Six, like moments where I was like, Fuck yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um like the whole um Gail Gail Weathers scene where oh, she's being yeah. attacked is just it, it incredibly done. It's just yeah. there's the the filmmaking craft in this is just like they are students of these films, yeah. but then are also bringing their own voice into it and you know, like she's not a big part of that movie, but she has a big scene, if that makes sense. Like, so yeah, she's, it's 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 really well done, and it makes me care about these characters. Mm-hmm. Where like I I liked some of the characters in I I kind of liked the characters in Scream twenty twenty two, but yeah. then I liked them more in this one. Yeah, I didn't like uh, I didn't like Sam so much in the first uh, in the Scream twenty twenty two. Is that one. the older sister? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. But I, I think she's much more compelling in this one. I, I, it might just be by the nature of what her character needs to do in Scream 2022 mm-hmm. because she, she's just kind of there to discover things and like she doesn't really have a fully developed character yet at that point where I think in Scream 6 she like feels like a character and there's also maybe fewer... Uh, uh, ghost Billy <laughs> scenes, which yeah, which was, makes that was... better. <laughs> uh, one thing I will say, I, I like that both this and the in Scream Five or Scream Twenty, whatever you want to call it, both live in a similar world to that of the Blumhouse Halloween movies. In that, it feels like every when you when I watch the Blumhouse Halloween movies, and part of the reason I like them so much is it just feels like every side character, no matter how small, is living in their own movie. Yeah. And I just like how, like, even, like, you know, something as simple as, like, um, uh, you know, like, the radio DJ in, Hall- in Halloween Ends. Like, he has his own fucking beginning, middle, and end that we just don't get to see. Him, him and Darcy the Mail Girl. Like, I just watched yes. a movie with those two. Yeah, um, or, or, or the the, um, the the two lovers living together in Michael's old house in, in, Halloween, yeah. in Halloween Kills. Like, I could watch an entire movie. It's just those two characters. <laughs> Big John, Little John. Yes. <laughs> And this uh, movie kind of does some of that, where it's like there's there's so many interesting, fun little small characters. Yeah, I don't know if we ever actually got to discuss this, but I need to know what you thought of Halloween Ends. That's like that's I like now. It. Oh, thank God. Okay. I know. I loved it. Like I loved it more than a lot of people. And, I, and part of the it, reason is, and I, this 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 statement is probably going to get me in trouble. If people listen to the show too. I love it for a similar reason to that. Why I love Rob Zombie's Halloween Two is because it's a decides just to be its own fucking thing. Yeah, like I love this like brooding melodramatic teen love story where we're gonna listen to synthwave and ride on motorcycles and Michael Myers just happens to be a character in the background. Yeah. I I weirdly love it. I I, I, I just want to live in that world. Yeah, I love Corey Cunningham and his arc. I know that's like the most <laughs> controversial thing, but I don't care. He's great. If they ever yeah. need to do uh, a prequel for some reason to Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, that guy. Looks like a young Michael Roker to me. Oh my god, he does. Yes, he does. <laughs> so I was like, the entire time I'm watching that, I'm like, I feel like this is like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer mashed with like Friday the 13th Part 5 and then like sprinkle on Halloween. And it's like, people complain about the lack of Michael Myers in that film, but it's like uh, someone on my Facebook did like a breakdown of screen time of Michael Myers in every single film, and he mm-hmm. actually has more screen time in that film than he does in the original Halloween. <laughs> I believe it. Yeah, you know, it's like that's the thirteenth film. Like, I don't need 
to see Michael Myers just do the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, like, I, I don't want them to always, like, have him not be involved much, but I'm fine with every now and then getting a film where it's like, it's not, Michael's not really the focus this time. Yeah, no, I, and I, I loved it. Like, it's each, each one of those films, I, I feel like I like more than the last one. Oh, really? In some way, you, yeah. You... Like, well, actually, I think <clears throat> I like Halloween Kills the most, but I guess... Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, Kills, I thought the... I, I saw the theatrical cut and thought it was fine. Uh, but I did watch the uh, extended cut when I did the last rewatch, and I liked that one a lot more. And maybe, like, in the con- context of all of them together, that one, I think, plays better now. Yeah, I, I guess the way that you felt about Halloween Kills is how I felt about Halloween 2018. It's like, it's fine. Oh, okay. I liked yeah. it more each time I see it. And I, and I never disliked the film, but mm-hmm. I just, I, I, they, they all just kind of grow on me. And I just, I just feel like, I feel like in time, like they've made a lot of money, but mm-hmm. I just feel like they're really defi- d- divisive amongst horror fans. Yeah. But let's be real, I'm going to say it now, horror fans don't know what the fuck they want half the time when you know you give them what they want and then they don't they say it's not original and then you change it up and they say they're not sticking close enough to the original horror fans don't fucking know what they want they don't like like change yeah they don't like change they just want to keep watching the same seven movies over and over again yeah what and that's like you know i have at least 11 other michael myers films i can watch like i don't i don't need everyone to be yeah uh, and I, I like people taking chances like this. The, mm-hmm. the, and I guess what I like will say that I like so much about Halloween Ends is it was the first time in these three films that it felt like David Gordon Green's Halloween. Yeah, it felt I, like he was making his Halloween, and so much so because originally I think it was just supposed to be one movie, yes. and John Carpenter got on board because he felt it was such a fresh and interesting take on Halloween. Mm-hmm. Which I struggle to think that Halloween 2018 was that. <laughs> yeah, so I kind I kind of wonder. I feel like they just keep getting more original as they go on. Yeah, I because if, if with a few script tweaks, if you had just cut out 2018 and kills, Halloween ends could literally just be a direct sequel to the original Halloween. Like there's yeah. not too much in the plot that really hinges on those last two, so I almost kind of wonder if Halloween Ends was always the movie he wanted to make. <laughs> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if that was like the idea that was germinating in his in his brain. I would mm-hmm. love to see like original drafts or like yeah, you know, early on plans and because um, I think I, I got a I got a feeling John Carpenter saw the fucking paycheck he got off of eighteen and said, <laughs> "Can we keep doing this?" Yes, <laughs> probably. Like, I uh, love John Carpenter, but that man loves, he is the most capitalist non-capitalist you're ever going to meet. <clears throat> and he's the absolutely. first to admit it. And you know what? I I got three new John Carpenter scores on vinyl now because of those movies. So that's all. And, and they matters. are some of the best things, best work he's done. Yeah, they're really great. Yeah. yeah so we salute the Blumhouse <laughs> Halloween films. Yeah, I'm excited to see what he does with uh, The Exorcist. But I guess without further ado, on today's episode of The Shameless Picture Show, we'll be tackling our second William Freakin film that we've done on this show. And it's one that's been on my shame list for a while. Much like when we tackled The Exorcist back on Season 1, Episode 14, I've been waiting for the right moment to watch this film, and this felt like it. Today, we'll be talking about William Friedkin's controversial film, Cruising. 
Set in the underground world of the early 80s, late 70s New York City leather subculture, Cruising is about a series of grisly murders that have been taking place that have been targeting gay men and that are involved in this subculture. Officer Steve Burns is newer to the New York City Police Force, but is asked by his captain to go deep undercover within this world to help track down the killer. Burns has a lot of similar physical characteristics to a number of the victims, so his captain believes he'd be a perfect to help lure out the killer. Steeped in both graphic imagery for its time and ambiguity, Cruising is the first time many had ever gotten a chance to see a glimpse of this subculture and even had a lot of regulars within the scene in the film as extras. While the leather scene does not represent the entire gay community, the film came under attack from various LGBT groups because they felt the film was harmful to the gay community and was reinforcing negative stereotypes of gay men being attracted to violence and they feared it would create more hate crimes than that were already going on. While many filmmakers such as Nicholas Winding Refn and the Softy Brothers have cited Cruising as personal favorites, the film was not a success on its release. Friedkin has also said that the MPAA originally wanted to give the film an X rating due to a series of graphic scenes that were eventually exercised in the theatrical cut, pun intended. Critical reception upon release was also quite mixed. Some felt Pacino's performance was great, while others criticized his casting, and many felt there was a lack of sympathetic characters and a resolution. While William Friedkin is credited as a screenwriter, Cruising was based partially on a book written by Gerald Walker, who was a writer for the New York Times, a series of articles in The Village Voice written by Arthur Bell, and the testimonies of Randy Jurgensen, who was a police officer who went deep undercover to investigate a series of gay murders. The film stars Al Pacino, Paul Sorvino, Karen Allen, Joe Spinell, Richard Cox, and James Remar in a very small role, with music by Jack Nitsche, I think I'm saying that correctly, cinematography by James Conkner, and editing by Bud Smith, directed by William Freakin from 1980. This is how would you like to disappear? Disappear? Go undercover. You know this man? Who's here? I'm here. You're here. These victims are all the same physical type. What about him, Skip? Late 20s, 140, 150 pounds. Dark hair, dark eyes. Have you ever seen him before? I want to send you out there to see if you can attract this guy. How where? A New York City detective in search of a killer is about to disappear into the night. Is it dangerous? How do you know you're gonna end up the same person when it's over? An odyssey to the edge of city life. Bartenders are starting to give me some information. There's this uh, name keeps popping up all the time. There he is, the one with the hat. Is that the one that followed you? Yeah. Why didn't you go with him? I don't know. I think you should check him. What he sees 
who's here. What he feels. I don't think I can do the job, Captain. I don't think I can handle it. I'm here. There's just stuff going down. I don't think I can... Uh, I can deal with it. What he experiences. Yes! What he discovers will change his life forever. Al Pacino. Who's here? I'm here. You're here. Cruising. So I tried to sum up everything. In yeah, one little there's a lot to say. <laughs> yeah, like this. This is a. This is a, a. Like I said, this is a film that's been on my shame list for a while. It's a movie that you've asked me a couple times if I've seen, and mm-hmm. it's it's as I said in my in my opening. It's a film that I felt like I was waiting for the right time to discuss or yep. to, to to just see, and then I didn't want to do the show, do the ep- do the film on the show, unless I had someone within the LGBTQ community who could give some perspective. Because, you know, when the show was just Nick and I, we are two uh, cis white straight men, you know, who have a, who we have our perspective on everything. And, you know, while I don't have anyone who is within the leather community, at least as far as I know (laughs) in my life who could vouch for this, I know this is a movie that I thought you felt like the perfect guest for this for a very uh, multitude of reasons. One, you like the film. One, you like horror films. You like genre films. And if you don't mind me saying it, you are a gay male. So yeah. I feel like you have a perspective that I wouldn't. And yes. just knowing that you like this film also adds a different perspective because it is a controversial film. Yeah. It's uh, the controversy around this film is a lot. And I think we'll probably dive into that eventually. But I, I think even to. Uh, today, the level of controversy, at least like with younger queer people, um, doesn't seem to be as heightened as it used to be. Um, I just spilled. I just spilled sparkling water over. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think a lot of the controversy had to do with the timing, and I think yeah. now today people look at it much more um, as a much more important queer film than it had that reputation when it come out i think william freaking even said that too where he said his timing of making this film because he originally didn't want to do this film yeah but he originally it's gonna be spielberg which i would love to see spielberg's version of spielberg has said that he wished his career would have went slightly different because he said there's a lot of really interesting genre films that he wanted to make mm-hmm. um and i he i think he i don't know if he'd make it better but i just think his would be interesting yeah um but Free, uh, Freakin, I think, has even said something like that, where he was saying that, you know, with the timing of this film coming out, and a lot of these these gay rights groups also making a, uh popping up around that time, he's at the time it was just poor. Yeah, it's uh, it, in some ways it is, in other ways it's like kind of the perfect timing, um, because it, it's capturing like. For people who don't know, this movie has very graphic sex in there that honestly you would have a hard time getting that in a movie or TV show today, 43 years later, Um, like unsimulated things going on in the background at all these bars. And these are actual patrons at actual gay bars. 
Sorry. Um, and yeah, I, know, I know that was one thing he also said that he wanted it to be as authentic as, as possible. So he wanted people within the community. Mm-hmm. He spent him and Pacino spent a lot of time researching, like going to these places <laughs> and just trying to be a fly in the wall to, yeah. you know, make it authentic. And while I don't know, while I don't know this world, it felt authentic. Yeah, fam- famously, uh, Freakin went to one wearing nothing but a jockstrap and was disappointed that none of the guys hit on him. <laughs> <laughs> that's the doc that's the documentarian in, in freak and you know the feeling that he has to go out there and live this yeah. what a what a fascinating guy um yeah but but i, I think what, what's cool about this having come out when it did is it's like right on the cusp of the aids epidemic um so like that when this is coming out i think it's only a few months later where the like very first article of like mysterious gay cancer or can or mysterious cancer killing gay men there's an article about that, which which was kind of the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. Um, so I feel like this captures an actual part of gay history that really can't be replicated ever again. Uh, so in that way, it's really important. And that and that makes complete sense. And like I said, it was a you know, and one could argue that um, you know the the people within this community don't necessarily probably want uh, a light shine on this on this world always. Um, but, uh, like I said, for a lot of people, this is their first time even knowing something like this existed. And mm-hmm. for some, it probably scared the shit out of them thinking that, like, oh no, now I got something else to be, you know, the homophobes got something else to be afraid of. Yeah. Um, but what I found interesting while watching the film, and like I said, I want to get your perspective, I want to in a minute talk about, like, your first time seeing it and your perspective mm-hmm. and things like that. But what I found interesting in the film is, it I just felt like Freakin was showing this world as he saw it or as, you know, I don't want to say as it was because I don't know. But like the way he tried, I feel like he tried to he tried to show it in a way that wasn't condemning anyone. And they were also where it wasn't the butt of the joke. It's just like this is what Mm -hmm. it is. And they're just living their life. Yeah, it's uh, for its accusations of homophobia. The movie treats these characters and these gay men as actual people in a way that I think even today it's difficult to see that. Um, I think even today a lot of like gay representation and especially mainstream studio films amounts to like they're just like kind of the token gay character and like I, I think it's almost a result of this movie that people are like too afraid to have not everyone, but some people are like, it's like when they touch on LGBT issues, they're like too afraid to have them be imperfect people or controversial people. They kind of need to be safe and representative of everyone. But these were like you said, the people at these bars, they were real patrons at the bars. This was what they would do. So this was, this was at least in that part was real life. So I don't think those people don't deserve to be represented because of what homophobes might do. I think the homophobes have more than enough uh, to to hate on, on gay people, and I don't think seeing this will be what changes their minds, you know? And Paul Sorvino's character even says that this is... I think his character even has a line at the beginning of the film, it's like, this is, this scene is not representative of gay culture as a whole. This is a mm-hmm. sub subgroup. Yeah, which, which is, I, I do think is a little bit of like a... And this is granted. This is only my perspective on on the mindset, but I do think that does come from a bit of internalized homophobia from some people at that time. Because mm-hmm. uh, 
almost like we would be accepted by our abusers if only those people over there didn't exist which to mm-hmm. me is like no yeah. that they they would still find a way reason to hate you <laughs> even if that well, group didn't exist and apparently and on on um home early home video releases for this film they had a disclaimer yeah at the beginning of the film and um Freakin didn't want that on the film uh mm-hmm. and so, and some people who detractors of the film feel that was like an admission of guilt that like he's admitting that like this film could be harmful or something i don't know yeah it's i think it might be very specific to the time period um Mm -hmm. you know this is like kind of in between like you know harvey milk being assassinated there's uh uh, we're on the cusp of the AIDS epidemic. We're in the Reagan era now, where which is extremely homophobic. Um, yeah. So I can see why at that time people felt like this was an attack, even though I think watching it now with distance, it very clearly was not an attack on the gay community. In fact, it kind of highlights how they're a vulnerable community who the police are not protecting. And um, if anything, I think that's a, a really positive way the outcome is more positive because it's bringing awareness to a real issue at that time. And one that kind of does persist even today to some degree. No, it makes sense. So when did you first see this movie? Uh, whenever the arrow release came out, um, which I would recommend the arrow Blu-ray is gorgeous. Um, I, I plan to pick it up. Like, yeah. like, plus I, I just want like, I want the arrow treatment for this movie. I, w- I just want to like see, watch everything that they put on it because I I, feel, I find myself endlessly fascinated by this movie. Yeah. So uh, back in college, uh, when probably first met you, uh, there is a documentary called The Celluloid Closet, which would go into like gay representation. It was made in the nineties, uh, but it was a gay representation from like the. I've been meaning to watch that. Thirties, twenties, all the way through up until like the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really interesting documentary. It's really good, but there is a whole segment on cruising there, which even there, it's like the movie felt like a big, like, no, no, like this is forbidden. You can't talk about this, which only made me want to see it more. Uh, so it, it always had kind of this like legendary, like aura around it. And I think at that time it just maybe wasn't readily accessible, um, and I was still in school, so I never really got to watch it. And then I saw um, Arrow was doing a release. So I was like, well, <clears throat> I'm just going to wait for that to be my first way to watch it. And I liked it. I, I My feelings on it like I have improved with each rewatch, even though I still have the same complaints. Um, mainly that the last 30 minutes is pretty boring. <laughs> It really loses its steam. <laughs> it's interesting. You said when you first saw it, you 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 kind of felt kind of lukewarm on it. You knew you liked it, but because mm-hmm. it's when I watched it, I couldn't. I didn't even know where to put like how to rate it, like on a letterbox. Yeah. If I go to my letterbox. It still has no rating currently because like I'm yeah. trying to like. It's like you know, like I don't know where to put it because I knew I liked the movie, mm-hmm. and there's times where I'm watching the movie and I think back and I was like. I think this movie might be a masterpiece, but then there's other times where I think about, but I was like, that was really clunky and kind of weird. And, mm-hmm. but it I, once again, ended- I, I find myself thinking about it a lot since I've watched it. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a movie that I haven't, I mean, it's probably been four or five years since I first saw it, and I still haven't stopped thinking about it. And I, I think what really turned me around, not, not turned me around, but where I stopped and was like, no, this is actually like a great movie, was uh, it was right, it was February, the very end of February, maybe even beginning of March of 2020. Uh, there's a theater here in LA that did a 35 millimeter screening of this, which was mm-hmm. incredible. Uh also a little bit scary because it was like right as COVID was was uh, ramping up, so it's like there's like a, a air of danger going to the screening, um, which kind of feels appropriate for the movie. Yeah, yeah, it was a it was a really weird, strangely appropriate way to see the movie, I guess. Uh, but watching that and seeing it in a theater on film, and granted, the theater was not very. Also, kind of added to it, like the theater was not very full. There was maybe like. It's a, it could probably see like two, 200, 250 people. Uh, and there's maybe like 25, 30 people there. Wow. So it, it felt like a dingy sort of like the, you know, you have like the film stock is like all like janky and, and yeah. Yeah. And, and it's like, like a great way to watch that movie. <laughs> I also find myself just like there's, um, it's like, I, I, for lack of a term, I call it just like the grit and the grime of New York. Like there's just a certain mm-hmm. aesthetic for movies made in New York in the 70s and 80s it, yeah. yeah like you have things like pretty much all of um 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 uh Bill Lustig's filmography mm-hmm. uh you know you have like um uh, fuck I'm just struggling to think of title like basket case you just have like the cruising you just have these films that have like this aesthetic to them that i find that i find really appealing mm-hmm. and this film fell so perfectly into that yeah it um the i i think that's what kind of like every time i watch it i'm just like kind of taken aback by the aesthetic <clears throat> the i mean there's just shots of just watching what's going on in the city and it is actual New York in this time period. And again, like hyping up the arrow release, like the restoration is just like, everything is so crisp, but then it it still feels grimy uh, Mm -hmm. because it is of that era. It's just such a weird little time capsule that I I'd love to revisit that because it's, yeah, it's something you can't replicate anymore. And it also just feels like, because it is 1980, so it's still heavily inspired off of, the the style of filmmaking and the imagery of the 70s mm-hmm. and the ambiguity of this film is what is so like it's simultaneously like wonderful and the reason i think this movie is gonna be so is sticking with me so much but also equal parts frustrating yeah i in, are you talking about the, like, the killer stuff the killer aspect of it and then also from what i've read like the scenes were moved around in the movie, which just makes Al Pacino's character look like an idiot. Mm-hmm. For example, you have that 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 iconic scene of Powers Booth where he's explaining to him what all the different handkerchiefs in your back pocket mean. Yes, and then he has a scene later on where he has a yellow handkerchief in his back pocket, and the guy's like, "Oh, so you like golden showers?" And he's like, like kind of panicked. He's like, "No, I just like the watch." And they have that fucking scene. Apparently, mm-hmm. that scene was supposed to happen first. <laughs> that would make so much more sense <laughs> and he, that seems supposed to happen first where he's lost and he's walking by and sees all the handkerchiefs and he's like hey what is what are all these mean and then he like gets kind of weirded out and leaves but That's, since wow. that scene happens first and then and then he gets called out for it he just looks like an idiot mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And it's it's William Friedkin has said multiple times, like I've I've watched a couple interviews with him where Pacino was not his first choice. I don't know how Pacino ended up getting in the film if he didn't really want him in there. Yes, I'm glad um, you're bringing this up. I was asking the question because of the end of Cruising, because what you, you wrote in your biography, that's uh, one shot kind of changed the plot, the, 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 the character of Steve, played by Al Pacino. And Pacino felt, uh, he felt dispossessed of that. He felt as he had lost the I don't character. give a flying fuck into a rolling donut about what Al Pacino thinks. Is that an answer to your question, Greg? Yeah, it's the straightest answer I could... Uh, I, could I mean, I could be sitting here for an hour and try and explain it, but that's a fact. Exactly. You know? Of course. I cared a lot, for example, about what Tommy Lee Jones thought, because this guy was a brilliant, professional, prepared actor. Mm -hmm. And he would think about his character more than the director, more than me. He would come to the set with absolutely brilliant ideas. And I don't feel the same about Pacino. But he wanted Richard Gere, which I can definitely see. A young Richard Gere, like, you know, when he was doing, like, American Gigolo or, mm -hmm. um, hell, I just saw him in a movie very recently that I thought he was great in. Um, I, I would like, love I, that. I would have loved to have seen Richard Gere in this in this movie because, like, he just – sometimes I have a – I want to talk about Pacino in this movie. But, like, I sometimes have a hard time separating Pacino, the actor, mm -hmm. from his roles – because uh, uh, a friend of the show, Katie Cadaver, we've talked about this in the uh, her and I in the past. Where there was a period in Pacino's career where I think he's really, he, I should say, he's always interesting. But as his career goes on, for very different reasons. Mm -hmm. But early on in his career, he is he is such an interesting actor. And around this time that he do, does he did cruising, I feel like he's starting just to become Pacino the like the, the movie star. Yeah, yeah, and like not to say he's do he doesn't do good performances and shit, mm -hmm. but it yeah I don't know it's like Pacino's a weird choice for this movie, but at the same time he's a weird choice, but that I think that kind of works because I think it probably made a comfortable people seeing Al Pacino in this type of role. Well, yeah, no, I, I do want to discuss the Richard Gere thing because yes, I I think. There's an element of like of Detective Burns like sort of questioning his sexuality and maybe he is gay and like uh, Pacino reads as like not not that he does a bad job in this role I think he is good in the role but I I think he reads as a little too old and too hardened at this point to be going through that type of thing where like Richard Gere he doesn't feels, seem like a young he doesn't it, it, maybe if it was Pacino back when he did Serpico but yeah. at this point he seems he doesn't seem like he's new to the force. Yeah, yeah. Serpico era Pacino, I think, would work better than this uh, era. But and that's why I like, like, I kind of want to see the version with Richard Gere because he. But at the same time, like Richard Gere might read as like too soft for going into like the leather bar scene. There's pros and cons for each one um, being in, in that role, and I, I'm not sure who would be better. And I know Freakin had said for a while that he was not a fan of Pacino's performance. I think he's come around to it now, but... 
yeah. Th- there's a great quote, I think it's from the commentary with Freakin, where they are talking about how for a long time Al Pacino would not discuss this film, and Freakin goes, good, he's not very eloquent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> that is, because uh, it's, uh, my, my, like I said, friend of the show and friend of mine, Katie Cadaver, she's been on a couple episodes, we were talking about, um, if I'm remembering her, our conversation correctly, she was talking about like how she didn't quite know how she felt about Pacino in the role. And I was saying that Pacino, when he was young, had such interesting range, mm-hmm. you know, with like Serpico. You have the first Godfather film. You have Dog Day Afternoon, where he was an actor. Like, he's always been an actor. Yeah, like, yeah. It's just, it, Like I said, he hasn't quite hit that movie star persona yet and it's around mm-hmm. this time and like i said he just it's funny you look at the the man who was in the godfather and the man who's in cruising and they don't even seem like they're the same person yeah yeah definitely it it's, it's like young stallone versus stallone now it's like how are yeah. they the same person and i think that's what's always frustrated me about this movie because i feel like friedkin and his filmmaking this movie when it's when it's going, it's like it's firing on all cylinders and it's incredible. And then I think the protests, I think the slightly miscast Al Pacino, I think the uh, MPAA, all sort of like it was like too much weight on this film, and it kind of falls apart by the end of it. Um, it's like you can't keep it together to like you know land the plane i'm probably mixing metaphors now but you know like honestly honestly like pacino like um someone in the film like it's funny enough when he goes to the club during cop night which i thought was hysterical because it's like al pacino is a cop who's pretending to not be a cop who has to (laughs) then go and pretend to be a it's it's mental olympics that i'm not prepared to even try to do um um, but they're like, what are you, a cop? And it's like, the entire time he's in this movie, I just keep thinking, he's acting like a cop. Yeah. He's oh, like, when, when he gets that uh, uh, apartment and he finds like the gay porn magazines and he just like, yeah. well, well, I'm going to get rid of these. It's like, sir, you are blowing your cover. <laughs> yeah. That, that is literally your cover. You're supposed to be a gay man. You should keep those. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and then... <clears throat> Apparently in the book, there was a lot of, like, additional backstory for um, for the character. Like, um, things like um, that apparently the character, um, Pacino's character, was in, like, the Vietnam War. And would oh, go okay. to bars and berate gay men. Like, would, like... Oh, shouting insults at them yeah and that he did he has like a a bent of um of uh racism to him which you know when he has to go to this world and interact with all these people of different cultures mm-hmm. you know and then apparently also like he uh doesn't have a very strong um sex life with his girlfriend so mm-hmm. when he is starting to have some more sex with her she then starts questioning what's going on and you know, all, yeah. like, all these things that could have made this character a bit more interesting. Because, like, my biggest complaint about this film, I find this movie endlessly fascinating. I It's hard for me to connect with any of the characters. Yeah. Because, like, Pacino doesn't have much for me to connect to. Karen Allen is just kind She's of a safer. Char- 
Yeah, she's barely she's, a character. She she could be an interesting window character, but he doesn't ever ref, you know mm-hmm. let her in. Uh, Paul, Paul Sorvino is just there to give expo- exposition to the neighbor character is really the only like character that we can kind of connect to. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like it, it's times, and this sounds like I'm criticizing the film because I did actually really like the film. I the times the film doesn't know if it wants to be like a gritty jalo inspired like exploitation film if it wants to be a police procedural if it wants to comment on on gay culture and you know a person finding something within himself mm-hmm. that maybe he didn't know existed you know whether that be <clears throat> being gay or being a killer that's yeah. something we still need to discuss yeah. um it's like the film has a is saying a, it, the film is saying a lot but it's not saying anything that I think improves it. I don't know. It, it, it feels kind of wishy-washy on you know, what it's doing. Yes. And, uh, yes. A lot of it has to do, I, I think, with the production problems. Like I, It seems sloppy, not because they didn't know what they wanted to do. It, it feels like they knew what they wanted to do, but they just couldn't achieve that with what was being thrown at yeah. them. Um, it's, and it's, which a, is a it's shame. A, it's interesting that I also that I mentioned earlier that like Nicholas Winding Refn says this is a big film, uh, a film that he loves, mm-hmm. because it reminds me a lot of his style. And I, once again, I say this as a, a big fan of Nicholas Winding Refn. When you watch a Refn film, like it's you feel like you're just watching it for the vibes. I'm watching if mm-hmm. I rewatch Cruising, I'm watching it for the vibes. Yeah, you, you can not do... because I'm expecting to get a full story out of it. Yeah, you, you could do like a double feature of this, and like I don't know drive or something and it's like yeah you get like just you're just there for the atmosphere of it really. yeah like for the visuals of it like you know i want to hear you know hardcore punk playing as pacino awkwardly dances and <laughs> intercutting with all this gorgeous blue fucking lighting and it's it's mm-hmm. just, it's for the vibes that's that's honestly what it is and I also find the murders really interesting i was oh, just saying, I've, probably, I've probably seen this movie five or six times and speaking of the vibes, I remember everything about that aspect of the movie, but I still can't really tell you what happens at the end, like why no. he figures out who the this killer is. Why, like, I, I can't really even track after five times of watching this movie what happened there. No, and like, <laughs> what I find what I find fascinating too is I could be wrong, but it really feels like they they have a different actor playing the killer in every scene they do actually oh okay the uh in fact some of the victims of the killer are playing the killer later on in the movie oh that's interesting so i I think the idea that they wanted to convey was that there wasn't just one killer that there were multiple people like like the killer sort of represented like this idea of just homophobia in general coming into this space uh and that it wasn't any one person See for me, it almost felt like it was like the like the like I almost viewed it as like there is one one killer, but in many different bodies, almost like the image of the killer is morphing, not in like a mystical sense, but like mm-hmm. you know um the uh, you just you, you just never know where it's gonna come from, almost like it's kind of commenting on the AIDS epidemic before it is even really a thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I love the idea of multiple people playing the killer, um, but I think it isn't conveyed well in the film why that's happening, um, mm-hmm. which is a shame. 
but bringing that up as like an AIDS metaphor, um, I don't know if you watch American Horror Story at all. But the, uh, I've seen the first three and a half seasons or so. Okay. so I've seen some of it, yeah. Uh, the most uh, recent season, uh, New York City, is actually oh, very... The show's still it, going on. Yeah, it, it's actually based on cruising. Really? And, yeah, there is like a leather daddy that's like stalking the gay community, and he's very much like a metaphor for like the AIDS epidemic and um, horrifyingly depressing season. But honestly, kind of worth watching. Uh, it was pretty good, especially if you're a fan of cruising. It's very much, it's very, very heavily inv- uh, influenced by cruising. That sounds interesting. I also found out that um, James Franco made a movie that's inspired off of cruising. <laughs> that has that intrigues me. I don't know if it's going to be any good because it was made by James Franco, but I'm intrigued by it. Uh, yeah, I have not seen it. It's called Interior Leather Bar, which is uh, I believe there's like about 40 minutes shot uh, of you can, literally just gay porn that freaking shot. Because um, I think from his mindset, he wanted to make like a, he wanted to go so hard on that aspect of it because he knew the MPA was going to like come down hard on him so that when he compromised, what they compromised on was the movie he originally wanted to make to begin with. Yeah. And I've heard other filmmakers say that, like I think uh, Adam Green, who made the hatchet films always says he makes his kill scenes so much more graphic than he wants them to be. Mm-hmm. So that way he can cut it down and then he can get, make the movie he wants to make. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and apparently, apparently, this James Franco movie, uh, Interior Gay Bar, is supposed to be a, it's like a docu series about filmmakers trying to recreate those lost forty minutes. Yeah, which I think the forty minutes were destroyed in like some fire or something like yeah. that, which is probably just a story they gave that I, I, I'm guessing the studio just didn't want to have that footage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, from my understanding, the James Franco one, they, they don't actually film anything with the scene. It's just kind of them talking about it, which is, uh, I, I don't know if, I don't know if disappointing is the right word because I don't know if I want James Cameron, it, or not James Cameron, Jesus, uh, James Franco to, uh, be doing those, it, it, those things, but. It, it's, it's like a 40 minute film and it's on Tubi, so I might just watch it just out of yeah. curiosity. Yeah, I might, I might give it a watch sometime. I, I was thinking of watching it before this, but then I was like, I, I. I decided to watch special features on um, the blue yeah. before this. Yeah. So. Um, so obviously you weren't alive when this movie came. When movie <laughs> yeah, came yeah. Out. But I was curious if you had anything to comment on in terms of the way that gay culture was portrayed in this film. And whether or not you think it was accurate for the time or if it was more spectacle. or just, I, just, I just wanted your perspective on the treatment of... Not only this particular subculture, whether or not you have anything to say about that, but then just whether or not you think this movie... We've talked about it a little bit, but whether or not you think this movie is a fair um, portrayal of gay life, I guess. I... So so there's a documentary called Gay Sex in the 70s, which kind of goes through the... What this era really was like. Um... And a lot of it has to do with the ways in which the gay community was now beginning to congregate in cities um, and the uh, sexual revolution from like the 60s and how that influenced it. And then like kind of leads right up to like basically how the AIDS epidemic started. Um, But they do cover a lot of the stuff that this movie was covering because it's the same time period. And it feels very accurate. If anything, this movie feels like it probably... uh, didn't go far enough. <laughs> um, 
but the as far as like the uh, I, I don't think today has the same uh stigma with like the leather community i'm not really a part of it but it's it's from my understanding back in like the 70s 80s that time period i think a lot of gay people uh who read and not to say that everyone who criticized the film was this way but i i think there was kind of a rift that was there i think gay people who read as more feminine were not treated well by people who were in the uh leather community um which was seen as a lot of internalized homophobia on that side um so i think there was always this kind of rift of like they felt like a community that was maybe uh, not kind to the rest of the community and uh, mostly like masculine cisgender white men, um, which is a fair criticism of that at that time. Um, And it seems like the controversy with this film felt like rifts that were forming in the gay community right before the AIDS epidemic hit, which I think once that hit, I think kind of all bets are off. I think people uh, had to start to learn to come together more <laughs> and uh, to fight this thing. But it's, I, I think at that point, it, it just seems like a, a, a divide that was very specific to that era that I think still exists to some extent today, but not nearly to the degree that did in like 79, 80. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting too, like you mentioned like, this internalized homophobia amongst like the groups. Mm-hmm. And then you have like a, you have a character like Joe Spinell's character where he's the first person we see in this movie mm-hmm. where, you know, he's, he's cruising around looking for someone to bust and then kind of takes advantage of these two uh, cross-dressing prostitutes. Yeah. But then you, f- but then he is seen multiple times within these bars. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a person who he, He's a character that in rewatch is actually becomes one of the most interesting characters. And maybe it's just, you know, uh, Joe Spinell and Joe Spinell to watch. He's such a fascinating actor. And it's so sad that he, you know, passed away relatively young. Um, because yeah, he, he is, there's something strangely compelling about his performance, even in like a very small role like this. I feel like I remember reading somewhere, and please, if someone out there knows this for sure, correct me, but I have a feeling, like, I remember reading somewhere that when uh, Freakin was trying to find extras for this film, Spinell's like, let me see who, let me, let me, let me reach out to a couple people, and, like, he helped get some of those people, because, like, from what, <laughs> everything I ever hear about Spinell, everyone loved that man, and he knew yeah. people everywhere. Yeah, every interview I I see about him, like people have nothing but like really kind things to say about him, which just kind of makes it sad, even more sad that like he was he passed away so young. Mm-hmm. But well, yeah, like like he just kept popping up in the, in these scenes, and um, and then I was like, I was thinking about that line that Paul Sorvino said early in the film. It's like, well, how do you know he's actually a cop and not just someone um, posing as one? And I was like, oh, that's interesting, because until the end of the film, when we actually saw him at a crime scene, we didn't know mm-hmm. if he was actually a cop, or just someone pretending to be one, or what was going on, because he yeah. just kept popping up. And um, and at the same time, you know, a lot of like these sequences in this film are treated kind of like a fever dream, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, because especially because Pacino's character is doing drugs, so then you start questioning whether or not like some of these people are actually there, if he's imagining it, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I guess I also want to um, discuss like thoughts on the ending and who the killer is, if there is one. Because it's funny, I I I. I was looking up interviews just to get Freakin's perspective and he's non-committal about it. He has yeah. no answer. Yeah. Almost which, in a very frustrating way. <laughs> yeah. Which I kind of I kind of respect that, that he just doesn't have an answer. Let us let us uh come to our own conclusion. Cause like um, even Pacino said it's like he, he kept asking Freakin, it's like when they're shooting the final scene, it's like what am I how am I supposed to be emoting here? Am I supposed to yeah. be like giving the look that I'm the killer, that I'm actually gay? What's up? Because all freaking told him is like, you're shaving, you're happy it's over, look in the mirror that makes you look into the camera. That's all he fucking told him. So it's like, I don't even want to know, like, did freaking have an, did he even have a thought in his mind or did he not care? Yeah. Yeah. It, it definitely, to me, feels like both are possible that he was at least the killer or a killer. Um, well, you have that scene where he's he interacts with the person that they pin the murders on, and he's dressed exactly mm-hmm. like him. Yeah, which is interesting. Yeah, yeah. But then when you see that guy, it's like that guy doesn't look like the killer we've been seeing this whole time. But Al Pacino mm-hmm. actually kind of does look a lot like him. And then that nursery rhyme that's being sung—the only person we, other than the killer, we ever hear sing that rhyme—is Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I feel like he has to be the killer. <laughs> um, like, I'm confident he killed the neighbor. Yeah, yeah. But it, it, whether or not he was the one committing these other murders, I don't know. Like, it's... It, my read I don't even know if I have it, an, I don't even know if I have a guess. Yeah, my read on it at this point uh, is that I don't think he was the original killer because for him to be brought in to investigate it, I think is... Uh, unlikely but i think through this investigation he started to discover things about himself that he didn't like so he took it out on the community and sort of became the killer uh Mm -hmm. which could be seen as maybe like that's one way i think maybe people would see it as a homophobic read that like him being becoming gay turned him to a killer (laughs) but um i I don't think it's it's that specifically it seems like he's a, a deeply homophobic uh person who um, has to go back to his like heteronormative life um, because that's where he finds his meaning. Um, and yeah, is, is he even even Karen Allen wearing the the glasses and the hat and jacket at the end? It's like it, there's some ominous thing there, and I don't really fully understand what he's trying to say with that. I don't know either, and it's like like I. I wasn't expecting the twist of the where the thought that Pacino might be the character might be the killer. Mm-hmm. I just kind of figured, like as the movie's going on, he's realizing more and more that he's liking what or he's responding positively to what he's experiencing in this world. Because, like, hell, he take that when they when they arrest that one guy, that first guy, he's like full on hogtied. Yeah, and like he he like he's prepared to go pretty fucking far and we mm-hmm. we haven't seen everything he might have he probably did at least a couple times mm-hmm. um 
and um it's it's also conflicting too because like every time the him and karen allen are doing something together like sounds from these clubs and everything is is ruminating through his head so that like he's remembering these and yeah. he has like really aggr- he has really aggressive sex with karen allen in this film mm-hmm. um and then it's they 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 slowly stop having sex to the point where she's commenting on it um uh, so it's like i'm like his him potentially being him potentially finding something within himself while doing this, I thought was a really interesting. I don't yeah. quite know how I feel about them trying to say that he might have been the killer or a killer. Um, and like I said, I'm confident he killed the neighbor, but I don't, the motivations for why he did it, I don't like. And I yeah. don't like, I don't want to believe that, but I know, like, that's the most obvious thing. But then even just the kills in this movie in general are strange. Like, they find body parts in the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. They're like, well, it must be tied to this one guy who has a very specific MO for how he kills people. But yet these body parts are also tied to him. So, like, I get the feeling there's multiple killers and they don't know what to do with any of it. Yeah. And, and, and the from my understanding, the body part thing was an actual, like, phenomena that, like, kind of inspired the book. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um because they're they were pretty sure that there was a serial killer targeting uh gay men in New York and in like the late sixties, early seventies. Um but I don't think that's ever been fully proven. So maybe it, it's almost like uh it's almost similar to like the I don't want to say problem, but like some people don't like the movie Zodiac, uh, because there isn't really a answer to who the killer was. Um and since this is kind of basing it off of an actual killer or a potential actual killer, we don't know if there's one or multiple. Um, and that that crime was never fully solved. It could be Friedkin's documentarian sort of tendencies mm-hmm. bleeding in and not wanting to say because in real life we just don't know. Yeah, um, and it's all. And I also wonder too because like it's it's no secret that as I mentioned that Friedkin really had no interest in this movie at first. Um, yeah. And um, uh, it was based on um, on a book. I said it right in my intro. Um, it was based on a book by Gerald Walt- Walker. Mm-hmm. But then he was also inspired by the articles from Arthur Bell and then eventually talking to Randy Jerkinson, who had gone undercover to investigate, funny enough, the um, – the murders of Paul Bateson. Oh. Who, do you know who that is? I know the name. Paul Bateson was, um, he's, he was, he, he, he was like a radiographer. Um, and he was also convicted murderer. Um, who I think was loosely, in, who uh, might have be loosely inspired, who might have loosely inspired the events of cruising, uh, oh, like okay. the book, but he's most notably he made an appearance in The Exorcist. Oh yes, okay, that's he, why he was that actor. He was <clears throat> an actor in The Exorcist, and Randy Jurgensen was one of the guys that helped catch him. Mm-hmm. So like Pacino, like not Pacino, uh, sorry, Freakin had all like these these 
all these things that eventually convince him that this could be an interesting story. Mm-hmm. And I feel like because he's he's coming from all these different places, he's like, this interests me from this story. This interests me from here. This interests me from here. And he's trying to put them all together to kind of make the movie that interested him. Mm-hmm. And I think because of that, it's not concise. Yeah. There is, uh, that's that's why I remember that. I just forgot it. I I, I I remember the name, but I didn't make the connection of uh, who he was, the, mm-hmm. the guy from The Exorcist. But there's a, a, a fun little tidbit in the special features where William Friedkin is talking about making this movie. And he actually went to go speak with him in prison. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, about what, what he did and why and thought process and things like that. It's, it's very William Friedkin because like at the end he's like oh we had a lovely conversation it's, it's just talking to a convicted murderer. Oh, <laughs> William Friedkin is such a such a weird guy. Yes, but his, his interviews are <clears throat> consistently interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, like one thing that I've been conflicting with the last couple of years, and this is kind of tied in the cruising, but it's more of a broader topic. And I was curious if you had anything to talk about mm-hmm. uh, with it is. So I have a very, much like a lot of people, but I have a very uh, conflicted, but overall healthy distrust for for police. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And I think the police system is fucked up and I don't, I I just particularly don't like cops. Uh, Yeah. But yet I find myself endlessly fascinated by movies about them, even though I don't like (laughs) the police. And I've been trying to figure that out in my brain. Uh, it's not to say I like all cop shows or cop movies or whatever. Like, you know, there's definitely a mm-hmm. time period for them that I seem to be more appealed to. But like, I'm trying to wrestle with that. And I was talking to my my to my wife about it, and she has she thinks it could be like a subconscious thing where like you're hoping, you know, you're you're, 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 you're there's always a hope that these characters in the movie are going to do the right thing where mm-hmm. the right thing doesn't always happen in, in reality. Uh, and then a lot of these, especially the grittier cop movies are usually commenting on the fact that the police force is fucked up and yeah, I mean, it has issues. Going back to Serpico. Yeah, or like even RoboCop. The whole point of RoboCop oh, yeah. is that the police fucking suck. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like I, I have like this conflicted feeling that like I, I – I like a lot of these movies, even though I truly don't like the cops that much. Yeah. Well, and I think this movie is kind of brilliant in how it shows like the corruption of the police and it, it, it very, it's very subtle in how it starts to reveal itself. Like one of the more baffling ones is the, uh, the, black guy in the cowboy hat and the, the cowboy jock, yeah. yeah and the jock strap and just walks in and slaps the, the them. funniest fucking <clears throat> scene. who the fuck is that guy yeah so great but that uh that was an actual tactic that the nypd used and that was one of the cops that did it he wanted to play that role yeah and because what they, they would try to get confessions out of people that way and so if they went to a judge later on and say that like the if they like tried to go back on their confession they'd be like well you know, I was in there, but then this like six foot five black cowboy and a jockstrap walked in and slapped me until I confessed. The judge is going to be like, all right, fuck you, buddy. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, like it, 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 yeah, like it, it, that's so fucked up. Yeah. And, and um, 
but in the movie, it, it comes off as just so random. It's hilarious. Uh, yeah. But but then, but then one another of the best scenes in the movie. Yeah. But then another element of it that like starts to reveal itself is again like the Joe Spinnell character, uh, where you actually have confirmation that he works in the police department and he knows the the captain uh, who literally acted like he just doesn't know when when well, the uh, when the trends. Uh, I don't, I don't know if they're trans think, or, or transvestite. I don't uh, think the captain knew him because at the end, the captain was said, oh, you're such and such? He's like, yeah, from, he's like, from six priests. It's almost like he put oh, it together yeah, yeah. Yeah. and figured out, that, like, oh, shit, this person, what they told me was correct. And it seemed like he was kind of wrestling with that a little bit. Yeah. That's the well, way I read it. Yeah, I read it as, like, sort of he, yeah, he made that connection, but it's just like, more like what are you gonna do about it type of thing you know like mm. it, it, it's it, it read to me as like basically cops protecting other cops <laughs> even when they know yeah. that they've done bad things um so it, it's like the the sort of corruption of the police force is very uh present in in the it, it's not right it's not in your face but it's like it's it's there um which seems in line with like other things that uh um William Friedkin was, or, um, well, yeah, I, I think, like, uh, what's it, French Connection, um, I think kind of touches on that a little bit from Friedkin, and then obviously Pacino was in Serpico, um, all seems kind of in line with movies of that time. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting, too, because, like, it's almost l- watching movies critical of, like, policing from like the 70s 80s is more interesting because I, I think there's like a, almost a like you were saying you kind of hope that they do the right thing um because the police force at that point weren't so militarized as they are today mm-hmm. so i i feel like because uh, i was kind of thinking if you were to try to read remake this movie and set it today um that aspect of it would feel a lot more gross than i think it did in 1980 yeah, like and it was still gross in 1980, but yeah, and I was thinking about that too. It's like, could you remake this movie and set it in a contemporary world? It'd be it'd have to be a very different type of movie. Yeah, I I think it would lose a lot of its edge if you tried making it today, which is I think what's so. I mean, it would depend on who's making it. Like, it, like if this were being made as like an indie film, I think you probably could more or less maintain its uh the originals of atmosphere and uh edginess but if like a major studio tried to remake this film i think it would lose everything that made it uh compelling to be honest yeah because i i think people wouldn't want to take a risk with this it's uh it's a it's a pretty ugly movie and it's it's delving into some uncomfortable things and I think everyone at the time, whether they were like gay or straight, seemed to have a visceral and mostly negative reaction to this movie. Um, and I think that would almost be true today, but for very different reasons. Yeah, I feel like this film was nearly impossible for them to make in the 80s with <laughs> all of like the, the protests going on to the point where... I think a majority of the film had to be redubbed. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because Pretty much everything outdoors. Yeah, and then like I think like people are saying they like they used 
protesters were had mirrors on top of roofs and were trying to shine lights into the shots to fuck things up, which mm-hmm. smart on them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's very I, clever. <laughs> I feel like this movie would get shut down if it was being made today. Yeah, but then again, um, like I said, we just got a season of American Horror Story that is very much inspired by this. Um, That's a fair point. I forgot you told me that. So. Um, it's so maybe maybe you could get this done today and it would be fine. Um, uh, although that season isn't as like it, it's pretty explicit for uh, cable television, but it, it obviously is not to the degree that this movie would be. You know who I think could? Granted, T mostly does television, but I feel like if the first name that comes to mind when I think when I think if they're going to do a cruising remake, weirdly enough, is Brian Fuller. I would be very interested. Uh, I mean, he he is directing um, uh, Christine, so he is starting to. Uh, he's, he's doing a remake of Christine, so. Uh, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, which I, I think I told you about that when I first saw Christine. Like, I saw a very yeah. uh, over gay reading of that film, and that Brian Fuller is doing that. that. I'm like, okay, this is this I'm, is I'm be into fun. it. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm interested in that for sure. Um, yeah, Brian Fuller doing like a cruising remake would be very interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, but or I'm even a fan just of like his. another another version of the book or something like. I yeah, or yeah, a new adaptation of the book or a movie, even just like as a throwback, uh, like like a not a remake per se, but something that's like kind of in that vein would be really interesting. Um, I'm yeah. so excited for his. Uh, crystal lake tv series oh me too like i cannot wait so i'm just happy to get more jason in some way or another whether it's not we don't know if it's going to be jason but you know i've intentionally not read anything about it just so i can go in blind okay um yeah i I don't know if jason is or isn't showing up but they did say that with the lawsuit that they have access to jason if they so choose to use him so there's there's nothing legally preventing them from using jason right on um, so I guess I, uh, I feel like a lot of the big topics we wanted to discuss we've talked about. So I wanted to see if there was anything else you've wanted to discuss about cruising. Um, it's <laughs> I, I don't know how many of your listeners will go out and watch this movie. Um, it is a really difficult movie, I think, to recommend because um, with the... Yeah sexual sexuality and sexual violence and other violence and it, it, there are just like actual like inserts of hardcore pornography during some of the murder scenes there's there's yeah yeah that there's unsimulated sex acts uh and pretty extreme stuff on on camera which is even shot more shocking that this movie came out in theaters in the in 1980 uh on valentine's day weekend <laughs> of all of all times um i bet i'm confident cruising ruined at least one date oh yeah like i'm sure i'm sure a a a a decent date night was fucking ruined by cruising oh yeah for sure um but yeah so so it's difficult to recommend because anyone i tell this movie about it's always like you really need to know what you're getting yourself into when you watch this movie like it's going to be weird it's going to be uh, sometimes uncomfortable for some people it's going to be kind of incomprehensible (laughs) you're in the end you're not gonna know anything yeah it's it it is like uh it's almost like a mood piece like you you don't really yeah 
everyone's going to take something different away from this, but I think that's what kind of makes the movie work so well. And why I, I uh, continue to go back to it is over the years of watching this, I probably, like I said, probably seen it at least five times now. Um, it, I get different things from it every time I watch it. Um, and even with this controversy, like I, I think it's important to remember that with representation i don't think there always is a right or wrong way to do it um uh, especially when this is depicting a real community that existed at this time and it is actually them the community itself depicted on screen they're even Um, shooting at some of the real bars too yeah yeah those those were that, that was a real bar at that point and um it's difficult for me to get upset about the representation when this is just for the most part, at least in those scenes, a pretty accurate representation of what it was like back then. So, mm-hmm. um, ju- just because I-, I would implore people to like not think that uh, good representation needs to fit into a neat box that um, is like almost like this Disney-fied, like palatable for everyone type of thing. Like sometimes things aren't so uh, black or white, and uh, it's worth exploring those things. Yeah, like I think it's this is a this is a perfect movie where I believe that uh, context is important. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I I this is the type of movie that you kind of wish you had like a not necessarily this in this style, but like almost a Turner Classic Movies like intro beforehand to put this movie into some sort of historical context of what we're seeing, why we're seeing it, and why it's important. Yeah, uh, and like that's why I think you know a lot of these special features on these discs are so important. But let's be real, even though Arrow and Shout Factory Criterion they put so much effort in these, not everyone watches them. Hmm? So some people just watch the movie and they like they form their opinion and they move on. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and I, I don't want to think... sound like I'm I'm being uh, dismissive of critiques of this film because I think those are valid. Um... But I feel my, like we spent a lot of this episode critiquing the film, like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. but more more so the filmmaking. Like, I, I I mean more like the the social um, mm, gotcha. implications of it. I, I think that is valid, and people who critique it, I think, are not wrong. Um, but I I think this is also a movie that is coming out at a time where there was virtually no gay representation, and I can see why people were upset because if this is your this is one of the early representations like of over queerness in film. Uh, this, this isn't great because it falls into the, you know, like another movie that was kind of reviled when it came out was uh, uh, Rope from Alfred Hitchcock. Um, and that also has the, the gay killer trope, um, which is, is gay killers, gay villains that, that has personally never really bothered me all that much. Uh, but my point is being, is just that, this film is kind of coming out at a time where there isn't a template on how to depict these things. And I think all things considered Friedkin going to the community itself and letting the community just do its thing while he documents it is probably about as good of a, of a representation as you could hope for at that time. Um, Cause, cause there's no, it doesn't seem like there's any judgment from him. Yeah, and from my perspective, obviously, it doesn't matter a whole lot because I'm from outside the community, but it feels very much like he's, while he's showing graphic things, he's handling it with a gentle hand. 
Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like he's doing it to shock the audience. It feels like it's there to shock Al Pacino's character. Um, but the f- from the actual filmmaking, it, it feels very documentary like. Uh, it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like it, he's bringing a point of view one way or the other. And you know, there's there, there, we talked about like the two prostitute characters at the beginning, um, who I mean they, they they show up later on too. But like, I'm not sure if they're just cross dressers um, or if they're. Uh, transgender or what they're supposed to be they're obviously cis men playing those roles and that's probably not how that representation would work today but also what movies of that era have like sympathetic uh gender non-conforming characters in a, a, a film like like they're portrayed as characters that the audience should uh sympathize with and relate to and root for um and they're them dressing as women for whatever reason. The The movie itself seems confused, probably because the language at that time didn't exist to properly convey what they what they identified as. But the movie never feels judgmental about that. It, it just feels like this is just who they are as people. And I think that's... Yeah. I, I think that element of this film is lost in that... Um, within the critique is that there there are really positive traits in here, even if the movie itself is a very ugly depiction of a very ugly time in in uh in the gay rights movement. But I think it also is worth stating too, is you know, like you said some of the some of these tropes don't bother you. But yes. I think it still is important to listen to the community. Yeah, absolutely. What, what what is what bothers one person might not bother another, and to hear both sides of it. I actually just experienced this today uh, with uh, on one of the Simpsons Facebook groups I'm in. Someone, <laughs> po- everyone likes to pick on uh, Hank Azaria for choosing not to voice a poo anymore because he said he realized he it's hurtful. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot there's a lot of people in some of these Simpsons groups who are uh, closed-minded white people. Who are like, oh, the, why doesn't he give back them all the money he made, or why didn't he feel this way thirty years ago? Because people change over time. Yeah. Um, and people have uh, there was like four or five people who kept posting the same article over and over again by this this Indian writer who said, "We miss a poo." He actually was in my he was positive, mm-hmm. but they're all clamoring to one person. Yeah. Instead, in, like they're like and letting that one person who is saying what they want to hear speak for the community and pretty much say, oh, you can't be offended because this one person said. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the uh, treatment of any minority group is like a monolith that they all must agree or share the same views. And that's not always the case. I mean, uh, and the production of this, there were protesters and counter protesters for the film, like people who like the leather community was really happy. This movie existed because it uh, showed a side of the gay community that was not discussed. Um, as often so it's what side to come down on i i I think both groups both sides of that can be right uh because they're talking about their own experiences and i I think it is worth Mm -hmm. listening to um as long as they're good faith arguments like it sounds like like what you're talking about like the apu thing is like not necessarily a good faith argument from those people who are sharing that article but as, Mm -hmm. as long as i think people are willing to engage in the criticism if they fall on 
the side of, at least in the case of cruising, they fall inside that, like me, that this is a probably overall more of a positive thing. Um, it is worth listening to the people who are criticizing it because like my, I kind of take the view that my position on this film and what it means to the gay community isn't so weak that listening to people who I disagree with will Mm -hmm. hurt it. It, It's only going to uh, give me a broader understanding of what this movie represents to so many people. And I I think that's good. It's a good conversation to have. 100%. That's why half the time on Letterboxd, I'll read people's bad reviews before I read their good reviews, just because I'm curious. Yeah. Um, uh, so on this show, one thing that we we did, we, I started this like a year or two ago. We do something called the Thrill House moment, and as you know, there's that episode of The Simpsons with, with Bone Storm, where Millhouse is playing Bone Storm, and he's like knocking his hair back, and he's yeah. like, "All I did was put in my name." So I call that the Thrill House moment, the moment that you, when you're watching this movie, and you were like, "This movie's for me," or "I'm enjoying this movie." Do you have a thrill house moment that kind of like solidified? It could be at the beginning of the film. It could be at the end of the film. What is your like thrill house moment? If you have one. I think, oh man, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I think probably. Maybe not, maybe not because it's like a great thing, but it might be the scene where Al Pacino, like there's like the dancing and there's like. <laughs> this sounds weird. Or do you, when he's like when he's like on the drugs and everything. And he's yeah, it's like that whole weird. like he walks in and there's like people just like having sex. There's like literal fisting happening over there, and he's like doing yeah. the dancing. It, it, it just like it it goes into such a, a absurd territory at that scene that I'm just like that's the point. Every time I watch the movie, it, it kind of is the height of the movie for me, and it kind of is downhill yeah. from there because that's it's like this is of... wild. What's happening? <laughs> Yeah, that that's kind of my moment too. It's like it's somewhere anywhere in between there and like the handkerchief scene, especially because mm-hmm. like I said, now knowing that those scenes were 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 swapped in terms of their order just makes like said, Pacino look like an idiot. And that's like there's a portion of this film where it's just Pacino like just showing up at these bars and like hoping something happens because he doesn't know what the fucking d- to do. Yeah. But no, like around that 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 like. I feel like the music starts getting really cool and really aggressive around mm-hmm. those scenes and like just aesthetically it just becomes a, a fucking treat. So I would say mine's probably the same, uh, but like my absolute favorite scene of this entire movie, if I have to say, is is near the end when uh, Pacino, when he's just straight up stalking that other guy, but when, yeah. when he follows him into the park and they're both dressed the same and... Mm-hmm. Like just the way that that scene is is composed and shot, and the performance between the two of uh, them, like deciding that they're gonna go off together, I just think it's great. I just yeah. think it's such a masterfully made scene. But no, I the 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 dancing sequence and all that stuff is definitely like where it was like, okay, I think this movie is really fucking good. Yeah, definitely. If I go with a favorite like like kill sequence that I think is really well done. It's probably the uh, um, when they're at like the porno theater scene, like oh that was so well done, yeah. It, like it's so tense watching that scene. Um, yeah, it, it, there's there's a lot of great moments in this film, and I, I I hope people who listen to this and decide to watch the film uh, kind of take all that in, uh, both the good and the bad, <laughs> with this film because <laughs> there's a lot of both. Yeah. As there's, there's probably I don't know how many young people listen to my show, uh, but if anything, this movie this movie feels like 
an 80s A24 film. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It's, for, uh, for those of you who needed that, that clincher, who are into you know, the current state of indie film, like it kind of feels like it's an 80s A24 film. Yeah. Or, or even maybe like uh, a A24 or like Neon maybe. Like I could oh, see... Oh, definitely. I could see like... Uh, uh, like a film district. Yeah. Oh, why am I blanking on her name now? The director of Titan. I'd like I'd like to oh, see her shit. I'd like to see her do do something like this. That'd be fun. She also directed Raw, right? Yeah. Yeah. I could see her doing something like this. And I've heard uh the movie uh I think it's um Heart Plus Knife is Yes, uh, which I in a similar uh, vein, which I still need to see. Uh my a friend of the show, Josephine, who was on our Spice World episode oh, nice. recommended that movie to me a couple times, so I just told you. Yes, see that one uh I watched last year. Um I almost went to the new Beverly for that one. They they had a uh, the director of Knife Plus Heart, when researching like gay porn of the seventies and French gay porn of that era, found like discovered a new one and like restored it. Um, That's like, awesome. One that was like lost, and then like the new Beverly actually had like a double feature of the porno itself and Knife Plus Heart, <laughs> which is wild. That's awesome. If that it is worked, wild. I I almost wanted to go, but it was like in the middle of the week, and I was like, I can't take off work to go see a porno film in a theater. <laughs> I, I think I, that's the perfect reason to take off. I wouldn't put that on your PTO request. But... Yeah, <laughs> PTO request reason porno. Yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm sure. I'm going. I'm going to the porn. Show yeah, I was pornography. I was buying pornography. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, but no, I, I completely agree with you. I think this is a movie that's not for everyone. It's, it's yeah. truly not for everyone. And it's, I think it will still put... It's it's transgressive even to this day. I think it will push boundaries. But very much how I felt when I saw Cannibal Holocaust, I tell people that if, you, if you're ready for it, go in with an open mind. And we're not even saying that you need to enjoy this movie. Just go in with an open mind and try to see what the movie is trying to do and what it's trying to say. We don't even know what the movie's trying to say, but I think that's part of what makes the discourse of this film so fascinating, is no one knows what the fuck this movie is about. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and I, one could even say, to the very end, we are cruising for a reason for why this movie exists. <laughs> Perfect. That was really ham-fisted, but I you know, did what I could. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm hoping, to, uh, obviously, have you on again at some point once we find the right film. Like that's my whole thing. Just trying to match the match the film up with the person. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love I love coming out here talking about things, uh, any films, really. Well, I'll have to send you the list. If there's anything you want to jump on, you're more than welcome. All right, cool. Um, but uh, yeah, is there anything that you're working on you want people to know about, or any you know, this is your chance to plug any of your shit, or if you want people to follow you on social media or whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I can give you my YouTube link. Um, I, I, I'm really terrible at social media. I'm technically That's on fine. on Twitter, but I don't do anything on it. Um, uh, well, we'll drop the link to his to his YouTube channel uh, in the description and. You should go check out some of the videos he's done. Yeah. I really like them. Um, they're always a treat for me, too. Whenever, yeah. you, whenever you ask me to take a look at an early cut of it, I'm always happy <laughs> into it. Well, thank you. Yeah, um, I, I will probably post things about it on my social media at some point, but I am writing a script. Uh, well, I, actually, I have written a script. Um, I want to do a short film, a queer horror 
thing that is actually in part uh, influenced by cruising. So I'm hoping to start getting into uh, some pre-production stuff for that probably sometime this summer. So I don't think you've told me about much about mm-hmm. this. I know you had an idea that you had planned based on a script that I had wrote at one point, but there was a, a yeah we were collaborating on that one, and there was a plot element that I wanted to bring into that script that I think ended up not fitting for that thing, and then uh, that idea kind of spun into um, a, a very cruising like uh, serial killer movie, which was. Uh, um, not really what fit for the script that but we were hey, working if, on. If, if the script that we were working on inspired you to do something else, that's always good by me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, working on that was actually really helpful for. It was like it, it was like having all these ideas and being able to like sort through them. And be like, okay, this works more for this project. This works more for this one, and like kind of picking and choosing what uh, what should go where. Uh, but yeah, I. I I have a feature for that that I want to make into a uh, obviously a, a feature film, but um, I'm going to create a short film first for that. So, well, everyone hopefully should keep there'll be news eyes, soon. Yeah, everyone should keep their eyes open for that. Um, upcoming on the show um, next episode, we will be doing 2001: A Space Odyssey with Frightmares podcast uh, host Austin Proctor. After that, I will be doing an episode, on, speaking of Nicholas Winding Refn, uh, doing an episode on Drive with Mark the Movie Man, Mark Croftjack, as well as Stephen Millick of the Twisted Dreams Film Festival. And then after that, we're going to be doing a Top Gun double feature of Top Gun by Tony Scott and then Joseph Kaczynski's Top Gun Maverick. So as always, guys, keep your eyes peeled to pretty much everywhere that you find your podcast. And uh, we'll be here next week. Shame time, shame place, shameless picture show. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.